jokes are dodgy and, uh, and true, true to form. <laughs> the advantage of easy origami is twofold. <laughs> I had a dream last night that I was cutting carrots with the Grim Reaper, dicing with death. <laughs> Albinos, can't say fairer than that. I saw this advert that said, television for sale, one pound, volume stuck on full. I thought, I can't turn that down. <laughs> a friend of mine was always, uh, always wanted to be run over by a steam train. When it happened, he was chuffed to bits. <laughs> My mate said to me, can you tell me what you call someone who comes from Corsica? I said... Of course I can. <laughs> None of those are mine. It's Tim Vine. Just, there's, what a great man. Right, I guess I'd better move off from that onto something far more glorious, if that's possible. I know, I know. You're struggling to believe that, aren't you? I can tell. Right, I'm going to start by praying because I need... No, you need me to have, you need me to have a whole dose of Jesus right now. Let's just let's just start by praying. Jesus, I thank you for what you've done this morning. I thank you for where you brought us. I thank you for the adventure we've had in half an hour and the adventure that we're having in our lives. I give you this morning. I give you everything I say. I give you everything that comes through in my undertones. I give you everything that comes through from my spirit. I don't even speak. And I thank you in confidence that you will bless every single person um, in this room and anyone that listens on a podcast, that you will use this to help transform lives and um, for you to be more glorified in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Right. Um, the purpose of my preach this morning... Um, is very similar to the purpose of what Pete brought last week, which is I wanted to go back over some foundational truths. Um, Pete and I didn't agree to kind of hit the same topic at all, and we're coming at it from different points of view, but that's encouraging for me and for him, I think, that this is kind of what God wants to do right now. Um, a few years back, we spent quite a bit of time talking on on matters of theology, and, and we haven't done that for a while, it feels like. We haven't um, gone over some of what I would term and think it to be not basic as in simple but basic as in foundational some foundational truths to our Christian walk that in my experience we need to um, grab hold of these and learn to live with these every single day um, not because I'm a sort of person who's Bible heavy and that's where I you know not just because that's my bag as it were but because if we're going to live in the fullness of who we are then we need to live true to who we are. And I think the best way to live true to who we are, the only way to live true to who we are, is to, have a, is to live with an awareness of the truth. And I believe what I'm going to say to you this morning is truth, and I believe it's truth that will help you to um, defeat what feels like the daily lies that come against you that try to just rob your joy and bring you down. So that's where I'm going. Uh, Mark, would you mind putting up the second slide for me, please? 
Um, these are some of the topics I'm going to aim to cover. Our intimate and very inclusive union with Jesus. The fact that his righteousness is our righteousness. If these are somewhat familiar, then that's a good thing, because it means we're, we're getting these into your head. Um, having a faith in Christ and not our experience of him, or rather not your, your, your faith being based on who he is, not your experience of how that outworks. Partnering with God in faith, so your response to that faith, um, and then seeing promises fulfilled, let's just say promises, I apologise. Um, I've got applications for each of these, so this won't be one of those preachers where there's something big at the end, and I have 10 minutes of stuff at the end. I'm probably going to allow no more than one minute, perhaps, as I go through um, each point, just to allow you to, I'll ask a question, just to allow you to sort of do some business with Jesus, and we'll just take it through all that. So that's um, the nature of what we're going to go for. Um, how this preach came about, I, um, I always try to find sort of something in the Bible to lock what I'm saying into so it doesn't feel like I'm just pulling out random verses because I feel like that's easier to follow a story. Um, and there is a story that I found in the Bible that I feel like I can draw lots of these things out of. I'm going to start by reading that. Um, and then I will pull some bits out from other parts of the Bible as well. So the, the first place we're going to look is Joshua, uh, the first section of Joshua, Joshua 1. 1 to 9. I'm just going to read it out. Uh, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all his people, into the land that I'm giving them, to the people of Israel. So this is, they've just come out of captivity. They've just been through the wilderness. Moses has taken them out of Egypt, Moses has led them for 40 years through the wilderness. Moses dies, and now they go into the promised land. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea going down towards the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's so much in there. I'm going to try and pull some of it out. Um, So the first phrase I want to look at It says, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Now Moses um, is described in the Bible as one of the, in the Old Testament, one of the only people that was described as a friend of God. He had a quite unique relationship to God. Um, He had the effrontery, some would argue, in that day to say, God, I want to see your face. And this is the God that shakes mountains, that their experience of God was literally an all-consuming fire. If you go too close to the mountain, then you will die. You need to stay away from it. This is their experience of this, creation, this, this God. And Moses says, I'd like to see you, please. 
um, he, he had an understanding of who God was that went way beyond kind of the revealed experience at that time. Um, and God says, you can't see my face, but I'm going to pass by you. And he gets kind of within touching distance of God. I have no idea what that looks like or feels like or must be like. Um, I think in that section it tells us there was a whirlwind and God wasn't in the whirlwind and there was a storm and God wasn't in the storm and then there was this gentle breath and God was in that. And then he passes by and, and there was this glory. My point in saying this is Moses had a unique experience of God and God is saying to Joshua, just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you, it says in this passage. Now that's a familiar phrase. Where, is that? Where else is that phrase familiar? Who else says something like that? Jesus says something like that, doesn't he? So Jesus is, he's not quoting the Old Testament per se, but if God says it and then Jesus says it, you know it's going to be true. Um, in Matt 28, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always until the end of the age. Can you put on the next slide, please, for me? Here's where I start to move from the Joshua account into other Bible verses that will hopefully prove that I'm not just pulling on random strings in this verse and saying it means things that it doesn't. Revelation 13.8, everyone whose names has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. What this is saying here is that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world and your name was written in his book before the foundation of the world. Ephesians, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his presence. John Crowder has a phrase, you were saved in, in, in Jesus long before you fell in Adam. Original sin is nonsense. Original Christ is truer. Does that make sense? We're told in classic Christian circles that original sin is like the truest thing about us and Jesus had to come and rescue us from that. Actually, before the foundation of the world, you were chosen to be holy and blameless. Next slide, please. Romans. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. So we're starting off with, before the foundation of the world, you were in Christ. You were holy and blameless before the foundation of the world. Before you ever sinned, you started off as holy and blameless. Then we're saying that although Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all men, a greater truth is that one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, I deliberately labelled my title as a very inclusive union 
because I want to throw some challenges out to here to you. I want to throw a challenge out that possibly may challenge your view of not just yourself, but ideally humanity. I grew up with a classic Christian view that everyone is wicked and Jesus comes along and grabs out the few and he seems to make some choice about who he grabs out and those that aren't chosen go to hell and those that are chosen are the lucky and they go to heaven. As if sin is the more powerful thing. As if sin tarnishes everybody, sin paints everybody black and then Jesus picks a few and paints them white. And that's the view I grew up with. And I, res- I struggled with this because I've always thought, but that doesn't make sense. How can that make that makes sin more powerful? That makes sin the most effective thing because it paints everybody black and only Jesus is less powerful because he, he only paints some white. That's nonsense. That, that, I, I can't get my head around that. But that's not what it's saying. This is saying that the cross was effective for all of humanity. Okay? And this is important because it affects you in the same way as it affects someone that currently doesn't believe that truth. Because all of humanity was before the foundation of the world declared to be holy and blameless. All of humanity have been justified by what Christ did. Let's move to the next one, please. John three sixteen. I love this because this is a a classic verse that we all know and it says so much more than just what we take it as. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the whole world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why am I bringing this verse up? Because it's really important, I think, that we understand that it's not about becoming a Christian. Because that suggests that there's something you have to do. This doesn't say that whoever prays a prayer whoever goes through steps A, B and C depending on what particular religious Christian group you're part of there are no A, B, C, D, E steps to this it's entirely dependent on what you believe about him that means in my opinion and there are people that think exactly the opposite to me and they may also be right. I mean, genuinely, I can't complain. I can't um, say that I am right. This is my personal belief, and I will share with you what I believe. You will find people that you may speak to on the internet that believe exactly the opposite. They also may be right. Your job, as our job, is to accept both without judgment but come to whatever place of faith you personally feel and not divide on this issue. Does that make sense? I don't mind if you believe what I believe or not, but I don't believe it's okay to be offended by what I say because I mean no offence in what I say. Does that make sense? So 
agree with me or not, this is my point of view. Um, but don't fall out with me, because I, I have no desire to fall out with you over this. But I believe that this means that there's no such thing as a Christian or a non-Christian. Because it's all been done for them, for the all of humanity. There are those that live in the good of it because they choose to believe, and there are those that aren't aware of what has already been done for them because they choose not to believe. And that is a dramatic difference. There's no hoops you have to go through as humanity to get to Christ because Christ has already come to you. This is why we can have something that's called good news. Because we're not, we're not telling people, well, let's move on. Let's have the next one. Because this kind of says what we are doing. Because of what we've just talked through, we regard no one according to the flesh. Where does that come from? 2 Corinthians. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Again, this is why I said this is a very inclusive union. There's lots of alls and many's coming through here. Therefore, all have died. I'm just letting that sink in. One has died for all. Jesus died for all of humanity. Therefore, this is saying all of humanity has already died. This is suggesting that your conversion experience is not the point at which you become a Christian. This is suggesting that your conversion experience is the point at which you gain an appreciation of what happened 2,000 years ago or before the foundation of the world, actually. All of humanity here died in Christ. When Christ died on the cross, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, because we believe that all have died, we regard no one according to the flesh. We can't view humanity as fallen anymore. If this is true, I can't look on a non-believer as anything other than someone who has died with Christ, been raised up with Christ, purer and holier than they could ever imagine, but they just don't know it yet. That seems to be what this is suggesting. We can't regard anyone according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, as anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, died, dead, buried. That's what baptism is symbolic of. We're baptized as a symbol of into the water, into the grave, out again, out of the grave, as happened to Jesus. It's symbolic of the fact that the, the old died, the new comes back. All this is from God. He did it all who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now this is, this is therefore why we evangelize. We have a ministry of reconciliation. We have a ministry that says in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against us and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This isn't God coming to you. This is God has come to you already. Come to him. 
Be aware of the good news. Be aware that you are bigger, stronger, more powerful, holier, purer, more amazing than you could possibly imagine, you drug addict, you. You prostitute, you. You tax collector, you sinner, you person who's riddled with disease, you cancer sufferer. The people that Jesus hung out with, be aware that there is a light in you that you never knew existed. God has come to you. Be reconciled to him. Come to him. Be aware of this. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled for our sake. And I've gone through this verse a couple of times at least, but I'm going to go through it again because this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He knew no sin. Jesus was not sin, but God made him to be our sin. So that in, in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You can put the next slide down for me. And the next one, sorry. I've shown this before, but I, this is just, for me, one of the most foundational verses in the whole Bible. And this, for me, is key to understanding who you are, which then allows you to live in the good of that. Jesus takes our righteousness. We didn't have any. He took our sins. In response, we get given his righteousness. A swap takes place. He takes my filth, I take his righteousness. He did nothing to earn that. He did not sin in any way. Likewise, we don't earn our righteousness. We do nothing to earn what Christ gives us. He received the full consequences of our sin, which was death. Consequently, we receive the full benefits of Jesus' righteousness. So when I say, I believe you are in intimate union with him, what I'm saying is that you are fundamentally a new creation. That you are as holy and as blameless as you can ever and will ever be right now. That your sin, were you to commit any, and you don't have to, will never separate you from God because your sin is not your identity. It is an external act that you may choose to commit because you have forgotten that you're not a sinner. Because you've believed a lie about what the best course of action might be. Because you've forgotten your identity, which is the purpose of this preach, to remind you of who you are. What I'm saying is that Jesus lives in you. That there is now no you separate from Jesus. You can't define you and not include Jesus in that sentence. You can't come across a situation 
where you don't have the full power of heaven at your disposal. You can't have a personal issue in your life for which fundamentally and foundationally one of the primary ways of overcoming whatever you're experiencing is a fresh revelation of this truth. Now there may be other sources of external help that will help you to live in the good of this but an understanding of the foundational truth of who you are will be the thing that enables some of my latest lies to take place. You are in Christ. He is in you. The old, sinful, depressed, diseased, greedy, lustful, proud, arrogant, lazy, deceitful, you died and no longer exists. Any sentence that starts, I am, and then has an attribute that that doesn't reflect Jesus is a lie. Let me say that again because this is, this is really important. Any sentence that starts, I am, and then has some kind of word that describes an attribute that is not Christ-like is fundamentally and foundationally untrue. You could say, I am currently exhibiting behaviours, but you cannot say, I am negative stuff because that is to fundamentally misunderstand that you and Christ are so intrinsically linked that the two cannot be separated that any version of you that may happen to have been that died before you were even born so you were never actually in your truest self deceitful lustful a liar greedy you just exhibited those behaviors because you were deceived into believing something about yourself that wasn't fundamentally true so when Jules got us to sing a song this morning saying I am strength I am hope I am power I am peace a voice for the nations a change for the world that wasn't arrogance that was a woman who understands her identity And you don't reach that place by anything other than appreciating the truth and letting it wash over you. Now, I started off this morning because of the lies that I deal with in my life, not experiencing that place. Just be honest for one minute. I entered this morning's meetings not experiencing that place of freedom. I entered this morning's meeting with this big cloud over me of lies that I was struggling to let go of. And honestly, I, I found it difficult. I couldn't um, reason my way out of that. And I'm someone that loves the truth. And I, I couldn't logic, my, I couldn't talk myself out of that. But I found in the worship, as I was just started to sing in tongues, that I, I, it felt like, and I'll, I'll just say this because this might be helpful, and if it's not, it doesn't apply to you. I felt like I went from a, a place of just talking in tongues like this. God, I have nothing but take what I have. And then as I spoke in tongues, as, I, as my spirit strengthened itself, I went from a place of humility 
and kind of I've got nothing, but not hopelessness to my goodness. I straddle, I, I stand in the seat of the person who has one foot on Mars and one foot on Saturn. I, my word, I kind of feel like you're this unstoppable force. And I, I went through that transition as Holy Spirit did it for me. So sometimes you have to speak to yourself. But sometimes you just have to sing out my soul and let Holy Spirit do it for you. Um, and you'll have your own versions of how you stir yourself. But ending up in that place, goodness, I can change the world. That, I believe, is your inheritance. And it's when, it, if we were to live in that place through a revelation of truth, that I believe you would be the most fulfilled you that you could ever possibly imagine. And we would see kingdom advance in ways that we would never, we've ne yet, not yet experienced. Because you're living with a revelation of who you have inside you, of who you are. There, that there isn't a circumstance that you come against where it's not, e it's not even you have the answer, as in the answer's Jesus. Sorry, Mark, you're going through something. The answer you need is Jesus. He's over there. No, 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 no. You have an understanding I am the answer. Uh, without any sense of arrogance. It's not like I have any power, but I, I, am, I carry Jesus. I, I, wow. What, what if it wasn't? What if the solution to this problem wasn't, let me just pray for you, and then walk away because you're not quite sure what to do? And that kind of, I feel like, I, I feel like the answer should be Jesus because that's what I'm told in Sunday school, but I'm not quite sure what to do with that. How about if you had this understanding of your authority? Sickness. In Jesus' name, I command you to leave. Because you understood this truth. A application. Just for one minute. Are there any lies that you are believing about yourselves or others? Have you thought they are, she is, he is just, or I am? Because if, if that sentence ends, something other than that reflects Jesus, repent of believing a lie and declare the truth about that person or yourself. It's very simple. Okay, I'll give you one minute. Ask Holy Spirit just to help you. Very good. Can move us on. In that passage I read in Joshua, it says, there's a phrase, being careful to do according to all the law. And it also says, this book of law shall not depart from your mouth. There's a whole bunch of promises, especially in, um, in Psalms. There's a whole bunch of the righteous, the righteous shall inherit there's a whole bunch of things that happen for the righteous. And when I was a kid, I used to read that thinking, oh my goodness, right, I need to find the list of what the righteous are. And I need to make sure I tick all those lists of righteous things or else I'm not going to inherit all these promises. And they sound like really nice ones. So I spend my life comparing myself to a list. And I believe that's utter balderdash. Because I, I can't be righteous. How righteous, you know, how, how holy is holy enough? 
the only holy enough is 100% holy, and I can never, I can never get myself 100% holy. So I, either I strain my entire life and completely bust a gut and get depressed because I never quite attain this thing, I may as well accept defeat right now because I can never be holy enough, or I understand that Jesus was holy enough. He is righteous, and because I'm in him, I get to inherit the promises because of what he did. But then we get told, but what about, what about sanctification? Aren't we, aren't we in the process of being sanctified? Isn't there a process that we go through? No. There is no process that you go through to become holier. Anything that suggests otherwise is a misinterpretation of the biblical words that are used. Let's have a look. We can move on to this slide here. John 17. For their sake I, conse- I consecrate myself, this is Jesus speaking, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be, it's the same word, sanctified in me, in truth. Now these words here are the same. Jesus is saying he consecrates himself and the ESV, my version here, has chosen to use sanctify rather than consecrate because they, they, they think it makes more sense. It's exactly the same root Greek word with a slight difference in tense. Let me explain it. I consecrate. So G, we're all agreed that Jesus isn't making himself more holy. Yeah? He's not going through a process of holy, holifying himself. Um, this is a, an active tense. That means I is the active party. Um, that they, that's us, may also be same word, consecrated, sanctified. This is a pa- passive tense here. This means they, us, we are the passive recipient, the inactive party in this consecration. It's also a perfect tense. Perfect tense in the English language and in the Greek language, is where it comes from, this particular verse, um, refers to an act that's already been done. So this is the passive perfect. The You don't take part in it and it's already been done. Sanctification. The same consecration, holiness that Jesus has, you have. But he did it, you receive it. He did it once, it's now done for you. Romans fifteen sixteen. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Not sanctified by your good efforts, sanctified by your efforts, sanctified by a lifelong pursuit of righteous behaviour, sanctified by going to church, sanctified by etc., etc., by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, not those sanctified by a process, not those sanctified by a, I don't know where your, where your boundary lies, Number of sins versus number of confessions versus number of repentances versus, I, I don't know. If you want to try this by yourself, you let me know how good you think good enough is. And then I'll point you to the Beatitudes and I'll point you to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was dealing with about the holiest people that have ever tried to do this. Walked, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they made it their business to be as holy as they could possibly be. And he said to them, right, great, you've got the bar here. Boom, let's just shift it a little bit more. Let's prove to you that you can never, ever achieve sanctification, holiness by yourself. That's the whole point of Jesus. Don't read 
the Gospels, thinking that G what Jesus says in the Gospels is bizarrely kind of the Gospel truth. As in, he's not lying, but he's not presenting the final word on the issue. His audience is primarily the Jews. He is primarily conversing with the Jewish establishment. Paul, later on, says a phrase, those who effectively are saved according to my gospel. Paul claims the right to define a version of the faith by which God will judge other people. Jesus came and brought uber law. Paul then brings a revelation of grace that Jesus did not introduce. But obviously Paul's version of the grace is based upon the character of Jesus, not what he said. You can get yourself so tied up in knots if you read the red words of Jesus in your red letter Bible as that is the things I must do. That wasn't the point of most of what he said. Some of it, yes. Some of it, no. And you have to be able to interpret what he's saying, who he's saying it to, and the purpose behind it. Okay? Don't judge yourself against the red letters in the book because you will fall short every single time when you tie yourself up in knots. Yeah? Look to Paul, who had this revelation of Jesus. Acts, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Again. Sanctification is not a process. You can never be holier than you currently are, and you cannot tarnish your holiness. You do not have a white cloth that when you sin, you stain it, and repentance washes it clean. That is not the case. That is not an analogy that is true. Let me move you on. Sorry, it feels very heavy. I'm serious. I get quite serious about this because it's, it's genuinely life or death, as it were. And I want you to have life. Um, next one. If you would please, Mark. Uh, move forward again and again. And next one. Have I got the... Oh, no. Nope. Okay, ignore that. Um, just close it down. I haven't got slides for these ones then. Take it off the screen. Uh, right. It says, Every place your feet will tread, I've given to you. No man shall be able to stand against you. Those are phrases from that Joshua section. Every place your feet will tread, no man will be able to stand against you. Now, the purpose of this bit is to encourage you that your faith is in the person of Jesus Christ, not in your experience of what he's done for you. What do I mean by that? I mean, your faith that Jesus can heal should be exactly the same if you pray for someone and they don't get healed as if you pray for someone and they do get healed. Because if your faith is dependent upon your experience of it, then that, that's not faith in Christ. That's faith in your experience of it. And that will, that's shaky ground. You can't stand on that. You can't change the world based on that. But for many of us, myself included, that's what we do. If we've seen the success, we're full of faith. If we haven't seen the success, we're shaky. If you read... Like the famous um, faith passage in the Bible is in Hebrews 11. Just before that, Hebrews 
8, 9 and 10 is all about what Jesus has done. The fact that he purifies us, the fact that he went into the holy place, the fact that he cleanses us, as, cleanses us from our sins. And then we get this glorious passage about all these heroes of the faith. And then this bizarre phrase at the end where we're told, now all these people that are being hailed as heroes, none of them received the promises that they wanted to see fulfilled. They weren't the big ministry people who see healing everywhere they go. They're heroes of the faith, not because of the amazing outworking of what they did, not because they ran ministry campaigns where thousands got healed, they must have a lot of faith. They're heroes of the faith because they chose to believe in what Jesus had done in them, despite the fact that they did not see it. Does that make sense? It's a fundamental difference. You can't read that list as though because they're successful, they've got faith, therefore to be a man of faith, I need to see success. That's entirely missing the point. The heroes of the faith, because in spite of the fact that they did not see what they had been promised, they still believed every single time, I pray for someone, God's going to heal you. God can heal you. God is still good. Because their faith is about the size, like Martin said last week, their faith is about, they, they look at the size of their God, not the size of their problem. They have an understanding of who he is and who they are in him. And it doesn't matter what happens, that doesn't affect their faith. Now this works itself out. Um, even, even this week, Jules and I had a conversation where she has a friend whose mum is suffering with MS, really painful MS. Um, and Jules was speaking to her and she had two issues. One was with the church and the religious nature of the church and two was... Sorry, your, your, yeah, her friend's mum. This friend had a problem with the church. And then two, this friend's mum had MS and she can't believe in a good God. And Jules come, came away from that conversation or in the, in the instance was saying things like, I, I don't have an answer. That kind of empathy of, I don't want to give you a glib Christian response. But then afterwards came away almost immediately and thought, hang on, but, but I do actually... If I'd remembered in that moment who I was, then she was the answer, potentially. I'm really sorry about your mum. I'm really sorry that's happening. Can I pray for you? Because I believe in a God that totally loves to heal. And, and there was a, a disconnection in Jules's head and heart in that minute between wanting to give empathy and sympathy and not a glib Christian response, but a, f a forgetfulness of who she was. That, like I said at the beginning, she was the answer in that, potentially. And this girl's mum may not have been healed in that moment. But actually, we still step into the problems of this world with an answer, not an apology. Never with arrogance, but we, the world doesn't need an apology. The world needs to change. The world needs power. The world needs love. And we have that. We are the conduit of that, but we forget it unless we remember who we are. Last thing. This is, a, this is just a quick one. Israel had to go into the promised land 
that was promised to them generations before. But they didn't just sit back and say, God gave me a prophetic promise. I'm going to trust him and let him work it out because I am faith-filled. I'm not saying you do it yet, God. I'll move into it when you do it. They didn't do that. That's not partnering with faith. God told Joshua, get ready. Joshua went around the camp and said, right, pack up your tents. We're going in three days' time. The Jordan River was still flowing. God said to Joshua, right, step in the river. The minute Joshua steps in, the water stops flowing. God said to the Israelites, I know there'll be giants in their lands. Walk around this city seven times. Don't say a word. The blow trumpets on the seventh day. What's that all about? Round they go. Walls come down. God says to the armies, hide in the trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the trees, then you go. God says, attack. God says to someone, stick an arm up. And whenever your arms are up, you'll be winning. When your arm goes down, you get tired. They partnered with the prophetic. God had given them promises. And they didn't sit back and say, right, God, when are you going to make this happen? They, I realize, um, yeah, that's fine. I've got 15 seconds. Um, they, they looked at the promises and said, right, God, what can I do to prove I have faith in this, as it were, to show that I'm with you on this? What can I now do? If I give a personal example, um, we received a prophetic promise on our life about Jules receiving some income from her creativity. So she hasn't sat back and said, right, God, I am creative, give me money. She started being creative. We, she's now set up a business. We've invested money. We've given her time. We've said to her, right, get drawing, see what happens. She started making cards. She started making posters. She's got a website. But suddenly, wow. Now, would God have done that if she hadn't done that? Probably not. Is it because his promise was untrue? No, it's because the relationship changes now. We're not in a wilderness. God leads you by fire and gives you quail from heaven experience anymore. We're in a promised land. You get the food because you sow the seed. We've changed. New covenant, we partner with God to see his promises fulfilled. We take action and he comes alongside us as we move. Because we understand who we are and who he is. God bless you.